Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. the next reel everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson eye of the tiger baby oh we spoil movies tonight in the show a fool will be pitied in stallone's next round in rocky three now when we fought you had that eye of the tiger man the edge and now you've got to get it back and the way to get it back is to go back to the beginning you know what i mean United Artists and Chartoff Winkler proudly present Rocky Three. The worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter. You got civilized. Get out of here with you! The truth is we both started out on the same corner and I got lucky with my life and it's driving you nuts. Philadelphia salutes its favorite son, Rocky Balboa. Why don't you tell all these nice folks why you've been ducking me? This guy is a wrecking machine. You know, you've got a big mouth. Why don't you come out and close it, Balboa? Come on. Well, I want to fight, fight this guy. You'll fight him without me. Come Balboa was a fine champion, but his time has passed. See that look in their eyes, Rock? Got to get that look back, Rock. I the tiger, come on. I would destroy any man who tries to take what I got. <laughs> Andy, we've made it to the middle ground. So can I tell you, Pete, walking yeah. into this one, yeah. I knew right out of the gate that things were going to be a little different because I didn't get the full title of the film 
rolling across the screen the way I did in the past too. I mean, it's there, but you also have the belt or the, you know, the, the championship belt. And mm-hmm. so they shrank the title because they want you to really look at the belt. Oh, they want you to see that belt. And so I was like, oh, okay. It's, it's already different. <laughs> that's what communicated to you that this is going to be a dicey ride. That's a, right out at the very first moment. Yes. I'll tell you uh, what does it for me uh, is the fact that this movie leans so heavily on the ground that it is so well trod already, right? The, the living in the land of montage, but that we open with a full seven straight minutes of flashback montage before we get into the story. Seven minutes, Andy. Well, to be fair, part two had six minutes of the previous film's finale. <laughs> I know, and I thought that was a little bit dicey. <laughs> yes, this, yes. This is different, though. This is this is a different kind of, uh, we'll say, diciness, uh, because they actually use that montage to give us the flashback of the the last few minutes of the Apollo. So we're sticking to formula, right? Yep, the last few yep. minutes of the Apollo fight. And then... They actually introduce our arch villain, our big bad, our nemesis in the first seven minutes and show his claim to fame too, like his rise to glory in the first seven minutes. How does this work for you as a narrative device? It was really odd. And I think I I, I don't know if I would have realized that they were introducing our villain to us, except for the fact that I knew that Mr. T was the villain in the film. And so <laughs> to that end, I'm like... It, once I saw him, I'm like, oh, okay, we're meeting our, our antagonist in the montage, and we're seeing him boxing and everything, but we have no idea who, I mean, they start saying who he is and stuff, but I'm just like, it's a weird way to to do that. I wasn't I wasn't thrilled by that. I wasn't either, but we also do get Eye of the Tiger. Oh, do we ever. Do we ever, <laughs> Andy. This takes you back. Takes you right back. Yeah, it does. It's, it makes you want to punch stuff. <laughs> yes, or uh, remind me of my uh, high school marching band again. <laughs> <laughs> what, remind me, what did you play? I didn't play anything. I just you listened should've. to them playing this song and the Rocky theme, <laughs> <laughs> like every game. <laughs> so uh, that's that's really where we are. It is an interesting way to introduce our our uh, you know the big bad. It's an interesting way to meet Clubber Lang and. Um, I, I, you know, I, I actually feel like Clubber Lang is a a strength of this film, uh, in that he's a, he's a big blunt instrument, you know, he is a big blunt narrative instrument that forces, it, it forces action in ways that, you know, hopefully are a little bit unique compared to the first two movies. How successfully does, does, you know, he do that for you? Uh, well, I think you're right. I think the thing that I found interesting this this movie weirdly felt like Rocky one and two rolled into one, but Rocky was now uh, the Apollo Creed character, and uh, and Clubber Lang was kind of the Rocky character, except not quite. But you know, he yeah. was still the up and coming boxer who ended up taking on the the uh, the the world champion, right? In that end is kind of the way that I saw it because we have Rocky losing to him and then coming back for for victory. I guess it worked. Um, And I liked Clubber Lang as the character that we were uh, going along with. I thought he was actually 
a pretty compelling character. And, and you're right. He's okay. very much a blunt instrument. And uh, I I liked that about him as a character. Like he just he is a, a junkyard dog who is just ready to attack at every turn. There wasn't uh, any more sides to him. And to that end, I was a little I, I definitely appreciated that in Apollo Creed because I felt like there's a lot more interesting stuff going on with him as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular character didn't have that. And to that end, that's where it kind of it it, it became less of a uh, um, a success as far as an antagonist in the film. Because your protagonist is only as good as your antagonist, they say. So they say. And and in this film, I think that's a really great point that, you know, you don't have to squint very hard to see this as Clever Lang's hero's journey and that Rocky is now the, you know, the one percent jerk who is, you know, making all his money through sponsorship. And and uh, essentially what we learned, I'm not going to say rigged fights, but kind of rigged fights that, you know, the anybody that is picked to go up against Rocky once he has the title has been handpicked to be, uh, you know, to to lose uh, somebody who they know that Rocky can take. Um, So so we won't say rigged, but maybe set up uh, architected, orchestrated one way or the other the foundation of this movie insofar as you buy it is that there is an institutional prejudice that is keeping clubber lang from being allowed to box at this level at this like world championship level and that rocky is part of the problem so it's pretty easy to look at this movie and think god i really just don't like rocky balboa anymore like this is not a guy i'm attracted to he is part of the institution that until just last movie he himself was trying to upset what happened to that journey and how well does this movie actually give you an opportunity to feel anything for this guy that that is we're now they're telling us we have to root for the one thing we were told was needed to be changed. That's where it hits for me as well, because it's taking this protagonist and he's giving him the attributes of the antagonist to a certain extent. And it feels like he's kind of that Apollo Creed character now. And he doesn't have that drive like he used to have. And that was actually an aspect of the film that I I thought was really interesting. Kind of this this theme that he was um, bringing up, this idea that, uh, you know, once you you have this passion to get somewhere and once you once you get to the top and get to that place does that by nature of getting there kind of kill that passion and that drive and you kind of settle in and you don't have that anymore and and as as mick says you know you've become civilized and i, was, I think that was an interesting line and that's something that i think says a lot about who clubber lang is because he certainly uh, he doesn't, he seems like Rocky Balboa in the previous two films and, and Rocky seems like Creed. He's, you know, he's now, he is that businessman. He's doing the commercials. He's finally figured that out, which he couldn't do in the last film. Yeah. He can speak with a credit right. card in his hand. Exactly. And he's, um, uh, he's just doing, uh, more of that business work and, and you're right. It's, it's, it's almost like he is he's not learned the lessons of Apollo Creed and he's in this position, but he's not letting the little guy in. And he only mm-hmm. does out of anger, really. So absolutely. Yeah. And and so it was an interest. I, I think what what uh, what ends up making the film work is 
really the fact that there already were two films with this character and that made us like rocky so we're walking into the film liking rocky if this film was an, an item that you're just looking at by itself it's not going to work because there's nothing to like about the protagonist and well, so it can yeah. only it can only um it, it can only be a part of the franchise as a success it can't stand out on its own very well i don't think that is a really nice way to approach this movie because it tries to do some things and it puts us in a position of 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 really not liking our protagonist even after he's successful at the end of the movie right like even yeah. at the end we realize what we're getting which is more of what we had when the movie started like how much does he actually evolve rocky balboa over the course of the film how much does he learn and how much do we have faith in the fact that this character is going to be something new and different as a result of the outcome of the film i might you know i would argue not all that much i i guess the character arc in the film that we see is you know he's afraid he's afraid of of losing he's afraid of of um uh kind of failing and 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 having people see him fail and you've got that speech that adrian gives him that's in, that comes kind of in the middle of the film that kind of spurs him on this was where i felt like um sylvester stallone's writing um could have used uh, some other hands to kind of help and firm up the story a little bit because i think it's close i think there are ideas there that that are interesting this idea of being in this position where you're winning but then all of a sudden finding out that there's this this system under you that's keeping where you where you are um and then being afraid that now that you know that that you're not going to be able to stay there um it it's a really interesting idea but i don't think it was ever developed as well as it could have been and i i feel like with some other writers on board kind of to help uh, clean the story up that it could have gotten there. You see that where, you know, when we, you know, they try to build this emotional response to the fact that, you know, to, to Rocky, when he learns that he, too, is part of that institutional uh, boot on his neck, that he's not really who he's who he feels like he should be. He's not the true, you know, world champion. And, and, and sorry, it's just really hard to feel bad for the guy. It's really <laughs> hard. I just oh, goodness, I'm I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm I'm so sorry, Rock. How's that haircut? <laughs> Is that like three hundred dollar haircut you're, <laughs> you're sporting? Uh, you know, how's that suit? Uh, he's he's just he doesn't he doesn't sell the the sad sack uh, very well. He does go through some transformative uh, m moments, right? I mean, we get this. Uh, I I think his journey th through uh, kind of his experience with Mickey and Mickey's health uh, is actually not bad. It's not too bad. Um, I, it was an element that I, I thought, again, could have been developed a little better. It was it was interesting because I was wondering what he was going to do coming into this third film with a lot of his supporting characters, because I knew they were going to be continuing on in the films and in the franchise. But I wasn't sure. I was like, he's got to give them something uh, so that there's an interesting part for them. So they want to continue. And with Burgess Meredith coming back as Mick, I knew it was coming. I didn't, uh, it, it never struck me as, as strong as it could have been or should have been. Um, I liked Rocky's reactions quite a bit to it, but uh, I don't know. There were elements with it that I just felt like 
it it was shoehorned in for the writing in order to make it all work. And largely, the thing that drove me nuts the most was the fact that here he is. He's kind of dying in the uh, in the the room. Yeah, and you have a doctor uh, come in, and you know I can't remember exactly how it was, but he's but they're like, well, if we could only have gotten him to the hospital in time. <laughs> But it's like, but you never even took him. Like you're yeah, there. You never left. Yeah, it's like, why didn't you take him? Like, and, and so to that end, it was a very frustrating scene for me. I, I'm like, you know, I I'd gotten the feeling that there was there was some exchange that I must continue or consistently miss between Rocky and Mick that uh, in which they say, you know, don't take me. I want to be here for the fight. Right. That's what I wanted to hear more clearly. And maybe I just keep missing it. <laughs> it's always been there, but I never hear it's it. All, it could be. <laughs> there have been weirder things. Um, uh, you know, in that same regard, in terms of characters and how well they use them, uh, we we have, you know, two more of our utility players. We have uh, Polly. We'll start with Polly, who I think has... Uh, probably the best introduction in the film. And before anybody starts speaking, this has the look of a film that I'm really interested in. Yeah, I completely right? agree. It felt like a it it felt like a scene from the original Rocky. It felt like yeah. a gritty '70s scene that uh, uh, could have been right out of 1976. And we get such we we actually get a little vignette of a performance here that I think demonstrates exactly who this character is in a, a you know wonderfully kind of interesting way. We get Burt Young, uh, you know, doing his, uh, you know, little slightly stumbling, sweaty, drunk act. Uh, and he just he he sells it. He looks great. You, you really get the feeling that he is second fiddle and he doesn't even have to open his mouth. Right. He doesn't have to open his mouth. And then when he does open his mouth, that conversation with Rocky in the garage and they start boxing each other is just so overwrought uh, and and, um, you know, playing for the for the quick, uh, quick laughs in a movie that just doesn't uh, doesn't merit them. Yeah, that was what frustrated me the most because I, you're right. I loved everything that that started with him in the bar and the conversation he had with the the barkeep. Um, you know, smashing the 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 pinball game, the Rocky pinball game. Yeah, all of that was great. And then it just it it totally turned into just this dumb conversation between uh, him and Rocky, which uh, could have worked really nicely, but it just. I don't know. All the all the steam came out of when he's just like, "You never even offered me a job." Well, you never asked. Can I have a job? Sure. Oh, yeah. Wow. That awful. what that what just happened here? Oh, awful. That was awful. it. Yeah. And awful. then I don't know what they did with him um, later. Once he once he goes to L.A., he becomes like I don't know if he was uh, kind of the playing playing up all of the things about L.A. that Sylvester Stallone doesn't like. But I, I just was like, he's always the one complaining about things out there. And and then all of a sudden, it was like, is he racist now? Like, he was just saying some things like, oh, you can't train him like a colored guy. Yeah. And just these, I'm like, whoa, what just happened to Polly? It just all of a sudden just took a weird corner and I just it, didn't like it. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. It was, you know, we've never gotten anything uh, out of that character, but, you know. Uh, that that would support this turn, and um, I just, it was unearned. It was just yeah. unearned. It was it just felt sloppy to me. Yep. 
the next character, another very important character. And I I feel like we we may have dropped some dropped a ball here on Adrian. Uh, mm. her her big thing in that last movie was oh my gosh yeah in the first movie was would you stop beating on this man that I love no more fighting no more fighting yeah I feel like she's she's not that person anymore it was it was odd in the beginning and I was I was trying to gauge like what what are my thoughts about this because she seemed to just in the montage totally become uh you know a the fan rich of the wife. money yeah. yeah and she's just like wearing the furs and just everything and i'm like okay this is a little odd for adrian i wasn't expecting her to go here and um yeah it just it uh i don't know i guess in my mind i'm like well i guess she got used to the life and and kind of just it, it became easier at that point for her to dismiss uh the the fighting and and you know how the money was getting there Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, because even when she comes to the point where she's giving her speech, uh, I mean, last time it was, you know, you know, win that whole thing. And this time it was really, you know, that whole don't be afraid sort of speech. And you know, I don't know, I, I guess it worked. It made sense to be coming from Adrian, but it just, it didn't have the punch that I wanted it to. Uh, and and I felt like, you know, from there, it just goes on and on these opportunities to have, a, a, you know, w- wonderful sort of experience with this, uh, you know, with this couple, you know, how this relationship is big, could be, you know, torn, clawed, wretched at, um, you know, by his job. And they, they never really they never really went there. And I thought that was a missed opportunity at almost every turn. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about our antagonists, and and we'll mm. say the first mini antagonist, the the first uh, <laughs> mini boss, uh, is uh, one Hulk Hogan, uh, who joins uh, us for a a stunt match, uh, which the Hulkster, right? Uh, and he comes in as uh, uh, what's his name? Thunderlips. Thunderlips. Right. Thunderlips. <laughs> He comes in as Thunderlips. Now it's all set up to be a charity event. This, the, you know, the boxer, world champ boxer versus world champ wrestler, and uh, they're going to see who wins out. And of course, well, you know, the theory goes that uh, once this giant wrestler gets a hold of that uh, tiny boxer, you know, match is over. So we'll see how it goes. And then the scene completely comes off the rails. I felt like this was a high jump, low ceiling experience for me, and I'm I'm not sure if it's just me aging out of fun <laughs> it's this uh, i i had to smile through the scene because when i was uh when i was a young teenager i was really into watching the wwf and all of the drama going on with hulk hogan and andre the giant and the kind of the different uh i i, God, I can't remember like uh rowdy rowdy piper and just like their two sides that were always fighting i i just totally ate it up it was uh, it was like my soap opera and i i really enjoyed it um so i had a great time watching hulk hogan here because <laughs> the whole wrestling scene was exactly what i would watch all the time it was just it was nonsense okay but right. uh, but yeah so to that end i had fun with it and uh, it, it, but it was funny because I'm like, well, you know, the, all this wrestling stuff is fake, of course, but, um, but I don't know. They were playing, I was confused a little bit. I was like, well, they're playing it like it's real. Like he's doing all the yeah, wrestling moves. Exactly. And he's playing like a real. So, 
I don't know, was it real? Like, I, I, uh, to that end, I was a little, but you know, I'm like, for the story, it is what it is. Because obviously, the story in wrestling is that it is real. So, in the movie, the context of the movie, yeah, it's not I like they're going to give it away, right? Yeah, you know, right. yeah. So, so, it was fun. I, and you know, it was just fun seeing him play this character. And boy, was he tall. <laughs> he is so tall. He is huge. Watching, uh, you know, Balboa go up against this guy. And, you know, when he takes the gloves off and he starts fighting and, uh, you know, doing the street fighting and then uh, and then Balboa picks him up and throws him out of the ring. Uh, and I mean, it's just so over the top. And I, I'm not I've never really been a fan of wrestling. So this always felt like. Um, it always felt ridiculous to me that this should have been stopped. If they're going to sell it that it's real, then it should have been stopped by authorities far before it <laughs> actually was. And uh, um, so when he comes around at the very end and says, oh, you know, that's a job, right? Oh, well, how about that Polaroid? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I found myself really, uh, I, I found it really disappointing and, and kind of ridiculous, but that's okay because that's all we get of Hulk Hogan. This is kind of a new thing for him. We hadn't really, he, he was just on the cusp of making it big. Um, yeah. I mean, he had been wrestling for uh, well, quite a while, quite a while, but yeah, it was really, it was actually like right after this movie um, when wrestling really kind of, uh, uh, well, it was really kind of when the WWF was, uh, I, I want to say like reborn. I don't know if that's the right uh, turn of phrase to say, but it really was like late 82, early 83, I think somewhere right around there when um, he really kind of took off or late, it might have been late 83, early 84. And that's really when kind of Hulkamania really mm -hmm. just exploded. And then he was like the chosen one. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I never really followed it. So. Uh, <laughs> you missed out man I, apparently i missed out so <laughs> let's get back to the other uh, new face uh, in this film and that is mr t uh, as clubber lang um clubber he was pretty new to uh this thing too we've never we've never um, seen him before on film this is his first movie uh and as we said before i think he did uh i, I think he personally did a great job in this movie whatever you think of how they used him uh, i thought he was an intimidating uh figure and a, a great antagonist oh yeah i absolutely agree i thought he was great i think that he takes this angry role and played it up really nicely i i thoroughly enjoyed him as clubber lang and i thought uh, you know he ha already had the hairstyle and everything that you know that inspired by the warriors of the mandinka na nation in west yeah. africa yeah. Um, plus his jewelry and his the big earrings and everything that he was wearing he created this fantastic image of who this character was that worked really well in context of the film and just i mean in context of his life i think mr t's always been a really interesting character and as tough a guy as he is i think he always seemed to be somebody who weirdly was still a role model like you know there was the uh, mr t cartoon um he was like he met with the um the reagans when they were when ronald reagan was president and i remember there's a you know famous picture of him and nancy reagan and just and then even like in recent years he was the voice of of the of the police officer in cloudy with a chance of meatballs so yes he was yeah so it's a 
he's an interesting actor and I thought he was great here. I really liked him. And this was really kind of, I mean, you said this was his first film role. I know there was another movie that he did this year, but um, both of these were uh, like right before he really exploded with the A-Team, which I think was actually exactly. the same year. Yeah. But uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And he got the introducing credit, right? I mean, he got the introducing Mr. T. Uh, yeah. And I, I feel like I, I can't put my finger on it, but I have a kind of a sense memory of seeing that for the first time and thinking, damn, nice name. Like <laughs> thinking aspirationally, I, I might actually, uh, I might actually need to change my name. Mr. P, <laughs> Mr. P. That's a, yeah, you could, you could do that. I could, I could, maybe too late. Unless <laughs> we, let's we forget I've aged out of fun. That's right. <laughs> As you've already said, yes, no more fun for you. <laughs> Final character we got to talk about uh, is Apollo Creed himself. He is uh, back in this movie, and uh, I I don't believe he puts on the gloves until the very end. He is back, and he's in a suit, and or I get maybe he does. He does. He does, he does. in the training. He does when he's sparring, but he uh, he's he's mostly in a suit, and he comes back to take over the role of Mickey uh, and becomes the trainer. Rocky Balboa for this big fight. He says, if you're going to train, you got to train a different way. You got to train the way I trained, which has always had a little bit of a weird light on it because, you know, the way he trained, he lost. <laughs> well, but I guess the idea is that now Rocky is going to know his moves and Creed's moves. Yeah, he's like the Matrix. He's leveling up. Yeah. I, I you know, Regardless of how that played out and 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 what if it made any sense or not, I I actually really liked the fact that Creed came in to train him and mm-hmm. um and took him on and under his wing to kind of uh, build him back up. Um, I I I actually I to that end I really actually liked all the beginning stuff with him and how Rocky wasn't really quite there with the training and all of that worked and it, like that even even when Mickey was still around and he was kind of doing that like awful training like yeah. with the press there and and you know kissing the letting the ladies kiss his cheeks and oh, so and gross. having people paint him and uh, that was like I don't know that to me worked really nicely to kind of show this is this guy who's hit this place and he hasn't realized yet uh you know that that so much of what he's on is is this uh uh false uh creation yeah. and so I, so I really liked that part uh, and i liked how how creed kind of helped him find all of that and something about their training that i do have to say uh, man the physicality of these actors, the training that they do, the work that they put into it to make this film work. I mean, I just was endlessly impressed. And and you have these um, montages of, of the two of them racing. It kind of became the thing. You know, it's like it's like catching the chicken in yes. the previous film. Um, you know, would he be ever, you know, he'll be ready to to fight once we know that he can actually beat creed in their uh beach in, races in right? barefoot beach race <laughs> yeah like <laughs> that's a half that, shirt <laughs> exactly we knew that but watching the two of them because it was often like this slow-mo as they were racing and stuff I, and their muscles are just like yeah i was just like i i was just unduly impressed with the amount of training that these guys obviously are doing to uh to do this work in the films and it just it, it kind of hit me at that point i'm like it's not just you know a movie like these guys are really 
doing a lot of physical work to make this happen. So it just it made it that much more impressive I, for me. I think you should talk a, a little bit more about that, right? The the stats of Stallone and his training regimen and where he ended up physically for this movie. Yeah, uh, so this was kind of interesting. So Stallone said that to get um his uh body fat percentage down to his all-time low of 2.8% and a weight of 155 pounds, he said he ate only 10 egg whites and a piece of toast each day, having a fruit every third day. He uh, for training, he had a 2-mile jog in the morning, followed by 2 hours of weight training, a nap in the afternoon, and then 18 rounds of sparring then another weight training session, and then a swim. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, every day to yeah. train. To That's, I mean, I do that. I do that, but I do the fruit every other day instead of every third day. <laughs> instead of every third day. So that's my, that's a gimme. That's, that's, that's my buy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a picture um, that uh, um, we should post in the show notes that's Stallone posted on instagram from uh, a behind the scenes picture and it shows rocky uh he's he's between scenes and Ro he's standing on his hands he's upside down you know, standing on his hands leaning against the corner of the ring and he he looks as poised there as he does when he's standing on his feet like he's just solid muscle uh and he said he didn't he didn't had didn't know that picture existed somebody must have sent it to him and he scanned it and put it up there but he said uh you know during the this period i only ate a very small portion of oatmeal cookies made with brown rice and up to huh, here we go this is right this is for you 25 <laughs> cups of coffee a day with honey and a couple of scoops of tuna fish wow <laughs> wow it's just fantastic that's uh, just nuts i mean but you know it's good he, he acknowledges that getting his body fat down to that level is actually dangerous for your body yeah like you should not have such body fat such low body fat um, and well, uh, and I didn't even yeah. say the reason he's standing upside down is because, you know, the, when he's doing these, you know, boxing scenes and they're kind of hammering on each other physically, uh, you know, all the blood rushes out of his head very, very quickly. And so he, he's standing on his head to keep the blood coming back to his head so he doesn't pass out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to think yeah. about that in my work <laughs> as a podcaster generally day to day. So <laughs> I, I will call that a blessing. <laughs> oh man, that is a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, that Crazy. He puts in. So, you know, and, and the last thing that I want to say about uh, Apollo Creed is um, he really needs to just at least get a new slogan for, for Rocky. Because it it was just it was too obvious, you know, tying into the song "Eye of the Tiger." Yeah, he's. <laughs> right. I was like, is he going to say "Eye of the Tiger" like in every scene, every time yeah. he sees Rocky? Because it really felt that way, and it got almost to the point where it was ridiculous. Well, he's a promoter, and he knows that you know part of retention <laughs> yeah. is repetition. Andy, I, I think he's a promoter for Survivor. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I was surprised uh, he wasn't holding the album as he was kept saying it to Rocky. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Over his shoulder. Right. Uh, oh, come on, Rocky. You're a survivor. You got the eye of the tiger. <laughs> you're a survivor. Um, let's talk a little bit about the final fight, the final uh, Clubber Lang fight. 
uh, the second movie, I think, you know, we talked about just how much had changed between the first and the second movie and what a delight it was to watch these actors pound on each other uh, and, and how, <laughs> how much better it looked and how much better it was shot and cut. Right. It was it was beautiful. Right. And the slow motion they used was just wonderful. Uh, how did this final fight here uh, hit you in three? Uh, it worked. I, I I actually really liked it. I thought that there's uh, uh, it was well. I, I guess what I, I liked about it is that Rocky had a plan and put it into action. And it was a surprise plan even to his team. And But to that end, I also was like, well, I mean, I feel like he would have talked to them a little bit about what his plan was um, because he, they seemed to be completely taken aback by this. Um, yeah. But I did like that. And I liked that it built to that. And I liked that it felt like there was an element of the Rocky that we knew from the first couple films, who is this thick headed guy who would just kind of keep steamrolling ahead and uh, wouldn't stay down and wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, um, you know, wouldn't let the, wouldn't let the fight end. I thought that was actually an interesting element to the fight and that he was, you know, he had this idea to kind of just have clubber Lang tire out. And to that end, I thought that it worked. Um, was it, shot in any way that stood out that was different for me um the only thing that i can think of that really stood out was the fantastic close-ups that you have of the two uh, actors and the the two characters as they step into the ring right up to each other and the camera is just so close on both of them and they're just like you know in kissing distance but it's mm -hmm. just they they have that look of you know kill in their eyes and i i just loved those the the two times we get those close-ups they were just fantastic and i think they're i i think they they did some interesting things around their long shots too and and it allowed you to really showcase some of the um some of the tricks that um apollo showed them i mean they're, they're these wonderful sort of circular dancing sequences yeah. so it really is almost balletic the way they they dance around the ring with each other and and uh um i i found that really you know interesting to watch it was compelling um to watch and i think they they cut it together nicely again i didn't feel like i was getting lost i don't feel like we got any of that sort of level up of the the actual presentation of the fight it looked great but it didn't look so great that it stood out to me like the second one did over the first it looked like a variation on a theme and it was great i think you're right about the close-ups though whatever they're doing um in, in terms of get, getting the cameras closer into the ring or or just straight up longer lenses uh the over the shoulder shots i thought were quite compelling uh, and scary um uh, and, uh, and i think the actors actually i think they did a, a admirable job looking like they were truly getting walloped um, you know, some of those shots at the end where uh, Rocky just just knocks Clubber Lang's head and it it's it's like a bobblehead. I mean, the way his head just floats on his neck is is horrifying um, and it looks great. Yeah. And again, going back to that physicality, I mean, obviously there is some actual boxing involved in this, right. not necessarily to the extent that these guys are really doing it. But I mean, in order to have it looking like, you know, a glove is making contact with a face, you really have to have a glove contact right. face. 
And well, so and we posted that and we'll talk about this again in Creed. Like we posted that that yeah. story where Rocky's telling the story of the the like I, I can't remember. It was like the in- initiation for a new boxer to come on set. Like at some point you got to get knocked out. You got to get KO'd. And he got KO'd and every actor who's come in has been KO'd. And so, you know, they, they there it is. It exists on YouTube uh, watching um, uh Michael B. Jordan getting knocked out in a behind the scenes take. And it is horrifying. Like this is it is it is real. Like there's enough there's enough real here that somebody's brains getting knocked around in a sack. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing to watch and to experience, uh, you know, visually to see that happen. But I it's I don't know. It's that's something with boxing films where I'm watching them and I don't know where that line is between where does the boxing end and the, the behind the scenes filmmaking begin, you know, it just all looks like boxing to me. Yeah. Right. And I'm always impressed because I'm like, I, I feel like they're really boxing and, you know, I feel like, you know, Mr. T and Sylvester Stallone are really trading blows in the ring. I, but I just don't know, you know, where, uh, where that's cut off to the point where they can say, okay, cut. Okay. Now we're faking this. Let's do this to fake this. Cause they never look like they're faking it. No, no, they don't. <laughs> that is, that is true. Uh, uh, the final scene after the big fight, after Rocky wins, um, yeah, we, we go into a little, uh, coda. Yeah. It's interesting. I wasn't expecting that because, uh, it, it, you know, you talked about how formulaic this film is, uh, you know, following the beats of the previous two films, we have, uh, the freeze frame at the end of the fight with Mr. T or with Clubber Lang as he wins, but then all of a sudden we're back. And now we have this, this, as you know, kind of this coda, as you said, with, creed and rocky and because you know rocky had promised creed creed kept saying oh you gotta you know gotta give me one thing he's like what is it don't worry about it you gotta give me one thing and this is what it was he wanted his chance to fight with him again um weirdly i i i watch this i'm like oh this is odd i don't know i don't know where this is going i don't know if i really want to watch another fight um, and then it ended as they both <laughs> take their first swing. And I'm like, oh, okay. That worked for me. It I, did. I ended, yeah. It I really did. liked it. I did. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'm so glad that it did. It's it's a it's a gimmick, right? It's a gag, but I have to tell you, I really liked it too. Yeah. Um the it after that as it as it freezes, it goes to a painting. That painting is by um artist Leroy Neiman. Uh, splatter yep. paint of Rocky and Apollo. Uh, going Who's in the it. film? He's he's well. One he there's a painting of Rocky in that gym that he has where he's working yep. out earlier uh, right. that Leroy Neiman also did, and he was the guest ring announcer in the film as well. That's right. Yeah. Let's talk about some other art, can we? Sure. In the film, I, I we got to talk about the statue. Mm, yes, yes, we do. So this statue, this is interesting, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a real thing. This statue, it's a, the the Rocky statue. Uh, it is uh, in the film. It is located at the Philadelphia Museum of Art at the top of the stairs. These are the Rocky stairs. It was put there uh, for the film. Uh, it is eight point or eight 
feet six inches tall, cast entirely in bronze. It sits on a large pedestal that makes it even taller. It's 2,000 pounds. And uh, in using some fat art words, I'm going to tell you that it is in the classic contraposto pose. And I'm going to do that and not say anything else. And so that way you'll think I know what I'm talking about. And really, I don't. Uh, the inscription of the uh, of the statue says, uh, Thunder in his heart, the character who represents the courageous spirit of the great city of Philadelphia and the brotherhood of its people. Uh, that is inscribed below the statue. Now, this is by uh, A. Thomas Schomburg. Sylvester Sloan was a fan of Schomburg's work and, and called him and, and asked him to do this for the film. Um, he had a license, Schomburg, to do three identical statues. Uh, and uh, one is obviously uh, in had its journey in Philadelphia. The second one is in the San Diego Hall of Champions Sports Museum. The third uh, wasn't cast until 2006, this final statue. Uh, it, it never actually sold. When they started uh, trying to sell it, they set the price at $5 million. It didn't sell. It went down to three, went down to one. It never sold um, and is still available for purchase uh, in excess of just over a million dollars. Uh, in addition, they made eight bust-only statues of Rocky's head from the same mold. Uh, eight of these are uh, 80 pounds each, 26 inches high. Uh, now, when the thing was placed on the steps of, you know, at the top of the steps of the museum, uh, it turns out the community was not happy by this. They weren't right. happy about this at all. Uh, and so they, they wanted uh, straight up rid of it and said some kind of funny things about it. Now, of course, Rocky, when they wrapped up uh, the the shoot, right, he Stallone left it there as a gift to the city of Philadelphia. And so, uh, you know, the, the city commerce director came out and said, this is fantastic. Uh, his, he said uh, uh, Stallone had done more for the city's image than anyone since Ben Franklin. Wow. Those are some big words. Uh, apparently, cultural <laughs> and museum officials. Uh, were not so pleased. They saw it as a movie prop. The public uh, started writing letters to the newspapers and the art commission, tons of mail, all of them saying we are, um, you know, we don't want the statue there. Uh, some said we love the statue. Most of them said it's not art, it's a prop. Uh, put it near the Liberty Bell, wrote, uh, one writer uh, submitted. Dump it in the Squeakill River, uh, wrote another. They, they just were not crazy about this statue being right there. And yet the statue kept getting press, right? It was in Trading Places. Uh, it, it ended up in Philadelphia, the Tom Hanks movie. I mean, it's the, it became a movie prop in many other places. Eventually, the Art Commission buckled under public pressure and they moved the statue to the Spectrum, uh, which is the uh, now the or it became the Wachovia Spectrum in 2003. So this was the this was the place where um, you know Rocky and Apollo had their first fictional you know boxing matches, right? So this was this is the stadium where they where they were. So they put it put it there, and it felt like a perfectly appropriate place. Well, and then of course you know the Spectrum was torn down. So what are you going to do with the uh, what are you going to do with the statue? Well. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes a drama again, uh, and it turns out it's drama uh, with uh, with a to be continued because, in fact, it is the drama is related to movies yet to come. Oh, goody. so I think we I think we hold the statue conversation there uh, because it's already a crazy, funny road uh, that this thing thing has taken 
but it is still somewhere in Philadelphia. It is not at the Spectrum because the Spectrum doesn't exist. And if you want one in your own yard, it's a million dollars. <laughs> and an HOA approval letter. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever been there? Nope. Hmm. I've seen it in the movies. That seems like it's a like, thing you exactly. would do. Given your and our joint love of movie locations and props, like it seems like a, a place we should go sure. now that you will have seen all the Rocky movies. I, I need to eventually make it to uh, more of the East Coast. It'll be a good yeah. trip. That'll be yeah. a good trip. Tony Burton, we've been seeing him in every film so far. He is Apollo's um, kind of trainer who's been helping him and in this film helping train Rocky. Uh, as Tony Duke Evers, I was uh, looking at kind of his uh, his filmography, and I'm like, oh, he's been in a lot more than I realized. Uh, <laughs> he's and he sadly just passed away uh, uh, about three years ago now. But Assault on Precinct 13, he was in that with uh, John Carpenter, and uh, uh, he was in the um, The Shining, which I had no idea. And I, I can't place his character. Um, he was Durkin. And I can't remember who Durkin is, but he is in no The idea. Shining. So I'm going to have to go back and look at that one again. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's certainly going to pop up in a, a few more of these Rocky movies. So um, he was also in a film called Farticus. <laughs> 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 Maybe not the high point of his career. <laughs> That was right between his stint on Chicago <laughs> Hope and The Magnificent Seven, the TV series. Right. Aye. Oh, that's exceptional catalog of work. <laughs> um, and then this was just an interesting side note. At the time, an actor um, by the name of Morgan Freeman, who was an unknown, auditioned to, to play the role of Clubber Lang's trainer. He didn't get it because uh, he wasn't uh, somebody that people recognized. And so it went to, uh, who did it go to? Actually, now that I say that, I'm not sure uh, who the guy was who was uh, Clubber Lang's uh, trainer. Uh, Wally Taylor, looks like, was his manager. So I'm assuming that's who it was. Yeah. But Morgan Freeman did not get it. And that would have been a very interesting thing to have seen Morgan Freeman pop up in here. And then the only other thing I wanted to say was just about Sylvester Stallone, as far as directing uh, and writing and directing, we've already kind of talked a little bit about that. But um, I, I but again, I just I feel like he's an interesting guy who's done some interesting things. And um, I, I feel like there is some opportunities here to do some stuff that uh, do a little more. And and I guess I'm hitting this point now with him where I appreciate the character that he's created with rocky but i feel like there could be a little more strength in it um that being said i actually felt like this was directed better than rocky too when i asked you uh when we wrapped up last week i asked you to make sure that you looked at this movie with a uh, with a specific sort of lens in mind do you remember what i said yeah cultural relevance or something yeah cultural french fries whatever something like that (laughs) yeah that that these movies right three and four are actually um tied to the period in which they were released more than i think the other two that we've already watched do you agree with that well i haven't seen rocky four yet i don't know if i completely agree with that with this particular film 
Um, I, I think it, uh, it feels like it's of the pack with the previous two. You know, I, I don't think it stands out as anything that's, that's wholly unique yet or, or specific to the eighties. I guess I have a, a, a particular sensitivity around, well, first of all, I think Mr. T and Hulk Hogan are icons of the period that are that that fit a sort of special place the way they move the way they act the way they they look um and and that stands out as kind of a relic of the 80s for me but also the hair the clothes the you know the products that they're pitching the furs i mean those are those are things that i i think are um you know relics of a period of our youth and uh i i think that i can sit back and watch the you know rocky 1 and rocky 2 and you know they feel like sort of period pieces uh, of their time but i don't think that they you know hinge so much on um you know the the caricature of the period the way this movie does um the way it strikes me i think number 4 strikes me even more so in that light and i'm i'm maybe this point will make more sense to you once you see both of them and maybe it'll help me make my point more clearly i don't know but right right, right. Um, that's kind of where i'm where i'm sitting okay well i look forward to having that conversation again next week well let's week. talk about the music then ah oh, bill conti bill conti's yeah. back he's still doing it still doing it now the music you know it's still the music i think that i had two comments on the music one of them you and i share i know uh the other is the the evil villain music when hulk hogan uh is introduced and he comes walking down the aisle and it it turns into like i feel like he he should have had a a black twisty mustache and a, a <laughs> top hat and uh dum 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 i mean it's just uh it's like vaudeville villains and uh I think it's uh, at once fantastic and ridiculous in in the overall you know scope of the score. It it actually it it detracts from the fact that they are trying to sell this as a real event because it the music is so comically not real. Um, so that's the only thing that really stands out to me in terms of of uh, any sort of divergence from the tone of the rest of the score. Conti is an interesting composer. Um, his his films are his the the music that he writes for his films almost always feel very tied to the time that he writes them and the rocky films certainly feel like it's great music but it really still feels like great 70s score you know right and and we're hitting that point with with rocky 3 where it's kind of feeling like you know it's it's still great but it's that great early 80s score now yeah and you're I think walking it, I, a fine line bill and i think very much the same thing when he um left this franchise and moved over to the karate kid films and did those because uh, and you know again very popular music for him uh, those those films and the music that he wrote but i i feel like it was very um uh very much of its time and it's funny because he wins these ASCAP awards all the time for his these it's it's lifetime achievement type awards for his music of being like one of the most performed themes. And Rocky won one year and the Karate Kid also. I it's it's interesting to me that um that these that this music that that he writes 
is just played so much, especially when it comes from his sports films. Because in this particular case, I don't think that the music's that special, but I think he wrote some really key themes that work really nicely just across the franchise. Yeah. And and then they decided to use it on set. And that's where all of a sudden things got weird for me because now it's diegetic music. Uh, we, we have, I mean, it was like watching my old high school marching band play it because yeah. they sounded just as bad. You didn't think they played <laughs> the joke off well enough, though? Like, I didn't. I, I think when Mickey turns back and says, yeah, shut up and change your tune. Oh, yeah, oh, no, I mean, it's cringe. Yeah, I didn't like that at all. I, I, I To me, it was like, are they trying to make a point that it has become this thing that is played by every high school marching band in the country? Uh, but why? Because now it's this diegetic music where all of a sudden, in context of the film, they're playing the Rocky music. That just didn't work for me. Does that was not fly. The, yeah, no. went too far. Too far, yeah. Rocky. But I do like that Survivor song. It's a good song. It's a fine song. Yeah. I, it was interesting. I didn't know this about uh, Eye of the Tiger, but the version in the film, it's actually the demo of the version. They didn't have it finished yet. The finished version appeared for the first time on the soundtrack. Maybe, actually, that's why Apollo gets to keep using the, the words Eye of the Tiger, because maybe when they originally wrote it, it wasn't called Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm that's just, what it is. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Scorsese? Scorsese, the school sees. Uh, it's it's really not a huge thing, um, but you know, it, I guess it ties into the cinematography and the editing. But wow, that came out between Rocky Two and Rocky Three, and I mean there were other boxing films too. But I just as I was watching this, and it, it really kind of as I started, it was in the back of my mind. I wonder if they if if Sylvester Stallone is a director with Bill Butler doing cinematography and Mark Warner and Don Zimmerman doing the editing, if they are going to pull any of the masterful techniques that Scorsese and his team um, used in Raging Bull for their boxing scenes, because they were so masterful, just the way that the editing was uh, cut together, the slow, the fast, the the sound effects, uh, just everything was so sharp and on point. Um, so I, I guess I walked into these fight scenes hoping I was going to see something that stood out as a little different um, as compared to what we saw. And I largely didn't. I thought it was pretty much the same on the same uh, scale as what we got in the last couple films not saying it was bad i was just kind of you know hoping that they would you know find a few new toys a few new tricks that uh from uh raging bull that they could play with and they didn't so it was a, I, I i don't want to say i'm disappointed but i guess maybe just slightly surprised uh, again this one leads right into in terms of tone and technique number four i'm very interested to see if you if they if they have learned anything yet again couple of other little notes. Uh, Stallone, he likes his Muppets. I loved this. During that uh, opening montage, you get to see him on the Muppet show. But what was interesting is uh, that was actually a clip of when Sylvester Stallone appeared on the Muppet show. And what was great is that Jim Henson actually redubbed his lines as Kermit the Frog, announcing that the guest was Rocky Balboa. 
How awesome is that? <laughs> that is so awesome. <laughs> oh, rock. Yeah. And did you ever play the Rocky uh, video game? Did Probably. you ever have a Coleco? I, I never had a Coleco, but I had friends who did. I wouldn't be surprised if I played it. I, I know I played a variety of boxing games when I was a kid, and I don't know why I wouldn't have played this one. The, it was called Rocky Super Action Boxing, released in 1983 on ColecoVision, as you said. And you could play either as Rocky or Clubber Lang against the computer in a one-player game or against each other in a head-to-head two-player mode. <laughs> it's like Knockout. Yeah. I never played. I never played this one. I I can't say for certain if I did or not, but I feel like I probably would have. You're the kind of guy who would have is what we're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yes. All right. You learn a lot about a guy by his boxing preferences. (laughs) How to do an award season. This was a film that uh, had two wins and eight other nominations. Largely, the nominations were surrounding the Survivor song, Eye of the Tiger, at the uh, Oscars. That's got to sting uh, it really to does, a lot yeah. of people. <laughs> no, at the Oscars, the Golden Globes, and the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Original Song. At the Oscars, it lost to Up Where We Belong from An Officer and a Gentleman. Um, the other nominees included It Might Be You from Tootsie, How Do You Keep the Music Playing from Best Friends, and If We Were in Love from Yes, Giorgio. I have listened to all of these now because I mm-hmm. was curious what it lost to. And I hadn't heard of those last two, but it might be you from Tootsie and uh, Up Where We Belong from an Officer and a Gentleman are certainly um, big popular songs. Um, if you had your druthers, what would you have picked for the Oscars? Oh, it might be you. That's the that one of all of them is the biggest earworm for me personally. And I recognize I may be an outlier, but I. I would say it's my favorite of the songs. I agree with you. I love It Might Be You. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful song. But Eye of the Tiger is the one that I think is the, is, I don't know if culturally relevant is the right uh, word to say uh, or the right phrase, but it certainly is the one that I think has had the longest staying power. Hmm. I mean, I think Up Where We Belong is a great song. It it really is. Yeah. and but it's it is it, it's it's kind of it represents that schmaltzier period of the Oscars when it's those real that type of song that was winning everything totally over at the Golden Globes uh, it also lost to Up Where We Belong but the other nominees included the theme from Cat People which is a fantastic David Bowie song mm-hmm. um, putting out fire um, and making love from the movie Making Love which is a terrible song I just listened to it um, <laughs> I <laughs> but certainly. I would have picked the theme from Cat People or uh, or Eye of the Tiger, which yeah. is a great song. And at the BAFTAs, this was interesting. It lost to Another Brick in the Wall uh, from Pink Floyd's The Wall, which I I don't know what the rules of the BAFTAs are, but wasn't that song on the album before the movie? Or was that song... Like, I don't know how that works. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that worked in particular. But if it was original for the movie, then there is no reason that that didn't uh, that shouldn't have gotten the nomination for the Oscar, too. Yeah, exactly. It's a a great song. Too good a song. Right. Right. Um, At the Japanese Academy, it was nominated for Best Foreign Film, but lost to E.T. And then the Razzies decided to uh, to nominate Mr. T as the worst new star. But luckily, he lost to Pia Zadora in Butterfly. And then this is not have been a real shame because I think that's I think his performance is terrible. I thought he was great. Yeah. Yeah. 
But then at the Young Artists Awards, it was uh, nominated or it won for Best Family Motion Picture and uh, was nominated for Best Young Supporting Actor, Ian Freed, uh, which is surprising because he's hardly in it. But he lost to Robert McNaughton for E.T. Mm. You feel any of those are uh, are lousy? Uh, no, those two, I think, were yeah. fine. I'm fine All with those. Right. Although Young Artist Awards, Best Family Motion Picture, I thought that may, I was like, oh, interesting. Best Family Motion Picture. Huh. Yeah, I think that's great. Especially if, if you know, in the other category, it lost to E.T., yet this one, Best Family Motion Picture, not E.T. All right, how to do at the box office. Well, Stallone's budgets just keep going up in this franchise. For number three, he got a whopping $17 million or $42.3 million in today's dollars. That is more than double the budget of the last one, showing that people were still falling for the franchise. The movie was released May 28, 1982, opposite the horror thriller Visiting Hours, easily taking the number one spot at the box office. That lasted for all of a week, though, as Star Trek II beamed in the following weekend and E.T. took over the weekend after that. That being said, it stayed in the top 10 for almost its entire theatrical run and ended up the fourth highest grossing film of the year, bringing in $125 million domestically and just under $145 million internationally, earning a total of about $672.3 million in today's dollars. That means this film did better than its predecessor, coming in with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $6.4 million. It's kind of amazing that it, it actually performed better because it's a movie that feels like um, the heart falls out of it in in a number of places, uh, and uh, I, I think it is a lesser movie than the one before it. But we'll see. Maybe you disagree. Well, you have people dying. <laughs> heart literally Some fell people out. People say from poor Mickey. <laughs> what do you What do you say? We rank it. Well, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that we've talked about on this very show. And then when you can, when you swipe over to show notes and you tap the word flickchart, you can act, add it to your very own catalog, your very own catalog. Spin up a flickchart of your own and let's see how it stacks up to ours. First up, Rocky Three or Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Here it is. My new favorite. Uh, Rocky Three, please. Okay. All right. I'll give it to you. Really? I was yeah. I'm surprised on that. I I would have assumed you would have fought harder for the bard. No. Okay. No, I'm not going to I'm not going to fight it that hard. <laughs> Rocky 3 or Raise the Red Lantern? Raise, Raise the, the Red, Red Lantern. Lantern. Yep. Rocky 3 or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance? I'm going to take Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. Me too. Rocky 3 or Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street? Hands down the Todd. Yes indeed. Rocky Three or High Noon? I'll take High Noon. High Noon. Look at this, Andy. I Just know. look at it. Rocky Three or Mad Max? Oh, Mad, Mad Max. Mad Max, please. Rocky Three or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Oh Brother. Oh Brother. I sure made that one easy. Rocky Three or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Knew Me? Knew Me, please. Knew Me. Rocky Three or The Lion in Winter? I'm going to take The Lion in Winter. Um, yeah, I'll take the line in winter. Well, that puts Rocky three smack dab in the middle of a chart. 195. Look at that. That may be our new middle. It, it, well, uh, it just might be. 
All right, Andy. Well, that that is a, a, a fascinating uh, landing spot, especially because I don't know why it surprises me that it landed almost in exactly the same spot uh, on my own flick chart. Uh, before I spoil it, how'd it do on yours? Yeah, it was pretty close on mine, too. It landed at 1904 out of 4,092, which is about a 53%. Very wow. close to the middle. Yeah. Very close to the middle. Out of uh, 1,056 movies on my list, uh, it hit uh, 509. That's a 52%, uh, just a little bit better. And and if I'm to go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel, that should be a two and a half star uh, rating. And I'm going to stick with that, but I will give it a heart. It is still rocky. No matter what I think, it's still rocky. Yeah, I, I landed right at two and a half as well with with a heart. Um I yeah I enjoyed it I enjoyed the fights I, uh, I it was an easy one to get into despite my issues with it. Tell tell me what you're looking forward to about next week. Well, we uh, we head into uh, the battle with the Russians, Rocky Four from 1985. I will crush you. <laughs> That's it, Andy. I just spoiled the whole thing for you. The Excellent. whole thing, Excellent. the whole movie. You shouldn't even watch it. Let's just do the show now. Spin it up. Okay, let's I'm do it. In turn. <laughs> well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out the new show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, starting with 2008's Iron Man. You can support that show and all of our shows over on Patreon.com slash The Next Reel. And you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The kids have spoken, Andy. Oh, yes, they have. God, I love these kids so much. <laughs> I want to have like, if it weren't super creepy, I want to have a kids meet up and watch party with just these kids who review movies on commonsensemedia.org. We'll just <laughs> meet up creepy. and we'll just creepy. watch. Is it a little creepy? A little I don't know. Creepy, yeah. We're going to we're going to put a pin in that <laughs> and we're going to workshop it. Uh, but for now, the kids have spoken on Rocky three. And indeed. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you have? Would you like to lead us off? Sure. I've got a 15-year-old. Uh, this is the Joe F., who actually I, I uh, read from last week. Uh, the Joe F. thinks that this movie is for ages eight and up and gave it four out of five stars. Says Rocky Three from Rags to Riches. Rocky Three is the section in Rocky's life when everything turns out amazing due to his hard work and courage during the rematch with the champ. This movie shows what it is like to have everything rather than to start out with nothing like the previous movies. This movie, however, has more action than drama than the previous two and will be acceptable to kids nine and up. This story tells us about how Rocky turns into a civilized fighter and loses his eye of the tiger. <laughs> this movie introduced the world to Survivor's Eye of the Tiger. <laughs> This title contains positive messages, positive role models, and drinking drugs and smoking. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, oh I lost my eye God. of the tiger. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, mine is, uh, I think, as impactful, though more succinct, 
Uh, it's from <laughs> Kid, who is nine years old, uh, who did not actually rate this uh, for any particular age. I guess that means this is an all ages experience, <laughs> but it is a five star. This film, says Kid, is good. This is a, a nice film, but bad because fighting and is bad. Mm-hmm. Try that. Let, let's just do <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to get the cadence on that one. That's first time I read that out loud. Let's try that again. This is a nice film, but bad because fighting and is bad. This film is a nice film, but bad because fighting and is bad. I don't <laughs> you can do that a million times. Is one of them right to your ear? They, it sounds right. Yeah. I think you're reading it exactly <laughs> as I'm reading it. <laughs> the best is that four people <laughs> say, yep, this review read my mind. <laughs> four people. It says useful details. <laughs> there's a there's an engine here supporting these kids' reviews that is just brilliant it is genius ah they're building the future right here at commonsensemedia.org thanks kids you know what i got the other day pete stephen king's latest want to borrow it do you know who you're talking to what do you mean andy when's the last time i read a paper book it's been like decades i would much rather use kindle or better yet audible what am i thinking i don't read paper books anymore either i am an audiobook guy all the way For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season eight, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I hope it's harder than season seven was. Mm, Okay, first up, The Odyssey Films. (laughs) Easy. 2001-2010. Okay, Planet of the Apes. Oh my goodness. Planet of the Apes. Great book. (laughs) 1968 Best Picture nominees. Uh, Okay, well, The Line of Winter. Oliver, uh, from Oliver Twist, Romeo and Juliet, of course. Um, was Rachel Rachel based on a book? It was Margaret Lawrence's A Jest of God, also on Audible. Awesome. Yeah, we have covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls. And Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, both of which were part of our Ingrid Bergman series. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. 